Welcome back everyone. I'm here with Professor Bill Fulford who has just given a talk here at the MQ Science meeting. He's a doctor, a philosopher and also the director of the Oxford-based Collaborating Centre for Values-Based Practice in Health and Social Care. Bill, we all think we're well versed in what evidence-based medicine is and what evidence-based practice is and what that entails. You're proposing that we adopt values-based practice in mental health. What's that? So values-based practice is, um, well, let me take a step back. What, is, what are values? Um, when we talk about values in healthcare, we tend to think either about ethics or we think about the values of the NHS, sort of big, high-level values. When we talk about values as in values-based practice, we're thinking about what is important or matters to the individual or family or group concerned in a given decision. So it's very much about a broader concept of values as around what matters or is important to those concerned in a given decision. So if that's what we mean by values, then values-based practice is the whole area of how we incorporate values in that broad sense into the decisions we take in the context of health or or social care decision making. Um, The way to think about it perhaps is that traditionally decisions are taken according to what's important to the system or the profession or the particular practitioner involved. The practitioner or the system decides this is what's good for people and then supplies it and expects people to take it up. This approach changes the balance a bit and says, well, the system or the individual or the expert may have a range of things they can offer, but what's actually right for the individual needs to take into account what's important to that particular individual. And that isn't always obvious. We think it's obvious, but demonstrably it isn't. Because if we don't actually find out what's important to the individual, we get it wrong at least over half the time. But isn't that part of what evidence-based practice is in the first place? I started working in Oxford in 1994 and Muir Gray gave me Dave Sackett's book and Archie Cochrane's book and a couple of other papers from the BMJ all about EBM. And I was taught that evidence-based medicine is all about clinical expertise, patient values and preferences, and then when you need it, looking at the evidence and looking at different types of evidence for different sorts of questions. Isn't that a core part of EBM? Yes, it is. And you're you're absolutely right that 20 years ago this was how evidence-based medicine was being described and talked about in Oxford. Um, But even in Oxford, and certainly more generally, evidence-based medicine has become a much narrower set of uh, considerations. Um, So instead of a rich model of evidence in which you will look at qualitative as well as quantitative evidence according to what's appropriate to the question you're asking we now focus very much in the evidence hierarchy on randomized controlled trials now that's really important for some types of research question but you can't answer all questions with randomized controlled trials add to that the fact that we now take practically no regard for the clinical experience and expertise of practitioners let alone of Um, experts by experience Um, and then of course we take no regard to what's important to the individual but if you go back to the original model it's quite explicit in David Sackett's 
book on how to practice and teach evidence-based medicine, that evidence-based medicine is about combining exactly as you said, evidence with experience and patients' values. That's very much what we're doing. I had an interesting um, email exchange with Dave Sackett. I never met Dave when he was in Oxford, funnily enough, but I did try and contact him when we set up the Collaborating Centre for Values-Based Practice, which was about three or four years ago. And uh, I emailed him because he's now back, or at the time he's living back in, in Canada. And uh, he sent me a very nice email saying, Bill, I'm very sorry, I, I really have retired, and, but I'm delighted to hear that you're doing, quotes, evidence-based medicine. And he, what he meant was that we'd actually gone back to try and fill out the rich model that he'd originally set up. I should say it isn't quite as bleak as that because um, our own NICE, the, you know, which is responsible for providing evidence-based guidelines to the NHS, uh, their guidelines all have a preface which is about how the guidelines should be used which very much spells out that original model but of course nobody reads the preface and so we get the dumbed down version of it so the way we work in practice with this is to say we need evidence-based medicine in the sense we need to look at best evidence as appropriate to the question that you're asking but we also need to bring that together with values-based practice we need evidence-based practice and we need values-based practice working in partnership and as I said in my talk earlier, that's a, the basis for a model of shared decision-making between clinician and patient that has been recently endorsed by this uh, Supreme Court Montgomery ruling, which says shared decision-making is now the basis for consent to any intervention in any part of health and social care, and that includes mental health. So let's talk about a pra practical application of values-based practice. Let's say I'm a a young psychiatrist working in an early intervention in psychosis service in London um, and I'm seeing a patient who is in crisis who has a first episode of psychosis and I'm talking to them about their medication options and their other treatment options and the care that I can provide for them. How would applying these principles change that shared decision-making process? Well. It, it will. This is it's difficult to give a general answer to that because we need to. One of the things that this shared decision making very much brings to the fore is that you have to be very context sensitive. And somebody who's in crisis in the first episode and a young person raises all sorts of special considerations: the acuteness of it, the threat that is represented to them and to others by their condition. Um, do, are, are they sufficiently, um, I mean, do they have capacity in the sense of their age and stage of cognitive development, but also to the extent that their condition is affecting their thinking skills? But to make the question slightly broader, if we're thinking about antipsychotic prescribing in general, there should certainly be a process whereby if you're going to be on and continue to be on an antipsychotic over a period of time, if you can't perhaps process this information when you're in a very acute state, but over a period of time it, there should be a dialogue, that's the word that the Montgomery ruling actually specifies, there should be a conversation, a dialogue about the risks and benefits, both, not just the risk but also the benefits of different ways of intervening in the condition that you have. And to take a, a specific example, one of the 
side effects of antipsychotics that tend not to be discussed is weight gain. Now, for some people, they would say, for me, being a psychotic episode is so ghastly, I'm not worried about a bit of weight gain. But for other people, it might be really important not to gain weight. That conversation, that dialogue, has to be had. It's not being had. I think it could be had with benefit. And I say that not because I've had direct experience of this, but working with people who have had direct experience of psychotic experiences, um, who will say that, some of them will say, I would never touch an antipsychotic with a barge pole, having had experience of it, I'd much rather hear my voices. Um, And there'll be others who will say, well, really, I can only live an acceptable life when I'm on medication. And it will be a very individual thing. And the Montgomery ruling, the shared decision-making that it's based on, isn't saying that you're going to move from the doctor deciding what's best for you to the patient deciding what's best for me. It has to be a dialogue. But what has to come into that dialogue is what is important to the individual. That's where the values-based practice comes in. I could, if you've got a moment, I can give you an example from a colleague of mine, or a friend of mine, also a colleague that I've been working with in a different context, Um, and she's given me permission to tell this story. Uh, She's somebody who does have quite, well, multiple problems, and is often on quite a lot of medication. Uh, She also does a lot of co-teaching in in one of our universities, Um, and she co-teaches, I think, social work students. But in order to do that, she needs to have a fairly clear head. And the medication sometimes make her feel very fuzzy in the head. And she told me, we'd been talking about Montgomery at one of our meetings, and at the next meeting she said, by the way, I used Montgomery the other day. I said, oh yes, what happened? She said, well, I was reviewing my medication with my psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist wanted to increase a particular medication. And I said, well, actually, I think that's going to make me feel fuzzy in the head, and I have to do this teaching, and I'd rather try something else or perhaps take a lower dose. And I said, what happened? And she said, um, we, I changed medication, and then she used a very interesting phrase, with permission. So in other words, it was quite, she's a strong-minded woman, she was going to do what she was going to do. But because they, she was able to have that conversation, she was able to discuss the risks and benefits with somebody who hopefully understood the evidence base for the decision, and they came to a shared decision about how to manage the next few weeks so that she could do her teaching. And from her point of view, it was much more important that she could engage effectively in this co-teaching than that she might risk a a period of, of relapse. In fact, she didn't relapse because, of course, she had control of her situation. But it was an important decision for her and it was important that she had a role in that decision. This is, I think, although... She was the one who was, had Montgomery in her mind rather than the psychiatrist, but it's a very good example of Montgomery at its best. Mm-hmm.